0: Good morning, please come on in, find your seat, we have much to go over and as always we do not have much time, or it always seems that way, good to be back with you all, I trust uh, Roman's time with you in the wisdom literature was profitable, encouraging, seeing there's a lot there in the, especially in the Psalms, speaking directly of the Messiah. This week, uh, this final week, again, this was a quick five weeks looking at the Messiah in the Old Testament, I want to look at two probably relatively unknown slash obscure passages in Zechariah. Zechariah is a complicated, complex book, and so I want to look at a couple of those. So if you want to turn there, you can turn to Zechariah 3, that's where we're going to be first. Zechariah chapter 3. Before we do that, let me begin with a word of prayer. Father, thank you for bringing us here this morning that we can gather as your people freely. We can worship according to your word uh, as we can best understand it by the illumination of your spirit. Lord, I pray that we would consider our blessings and how you have blessed us in Christ with so much. Lord, thank you for this time. I pray that these last couple of weeks that we have spent together looking at the Old Testament and the promise of the coming of your son would encourage our hearts, would help us to see the glorious riches of your word. Pray that you would bless this time as we look to the prophet Zechariah. We ask this in your name. Amen. Amen. All right, so quickly here, um, I'm going to try and not go over, but these are two complicated chapters, so I will, I will do my best. Uh, some context on Zechariah. Israel has returned to the land, okay? Um, If you remember Cyrus of Persia, he conquered Babylon. And in 538 BC, uh, about 60, 70 years after he had conquered them, he begins to let people go back to their land. And that includes Israel going back to their country. And Zechariah is in that time frame. If you remember Ezra and Nehemiah, Actually, Ezra 5.1 actually mentions the prophet Zechariah and also Haggai um, as one of the two of the prophets who encourage the people in rebuilding the temple. Zechariah's name means Yahweh remembers. God remembers. And as such, his name, it's actually significant uh, in his book, uh, he's telling Israel that Yahweh remembers his covenant promises that he made to Israel. His name has meaning. That is a large part of his message. You could honestly probably describe Zechariah as the, the Old Testament version of the New Testament book of Revelation, right? If you guys know Revelation, it's like, you know, dragons and women and all kinds of crazy things. There's no dragons and women in uh, Zechariah, but there's some complicated things going on there, okay? And so oftentimes, Zechariah, we, we read it and we go, okay, I don't know what that means. I'll just keep reading. Uh, and so that's one of the reasons why I wanted to spend a couple... Just this last Sunday, looking at two chapters there. Uh, the first six chapters of Zechariah are based on a series of visions. So I mean, if you guys are just looking at the chapter headings, you'll see a vision of a horseman, um, you know, a vision of a man with a measuring line, vision of a golden lampstand. You have all these visions. Um, then you have chapter 7 and 8. They deal with Zechariah calling Israel to repentance. And then Zechariah chapter 9, to the end of the book, really deals with uh, God's plan for, you could just say, pretty much the rest of history, okay? Going from Zechariah's day all the way till the end of days, um, coming to the, the age to come. So, Zechariah, suffice to say, is a very important book, okay? All of Scripture is important, but Zechariah especially so. Uh, has a couple passages you probably remember. These probably sound familiar to you. To you. you remember Zechariah 9.9? Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion! Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem! Behold... Your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And we remember, hopefully that's cited in the New Testament, right? In the Lord's triumphal entry, right? Matthew quotes it there. In Zechariah's context, he's actually talking about the conquering king over all the nations um, in that context of Zechariah 9. Also, Zechariah 12.10. Later, he says, and I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that, this is important here, when they look on me, and that is referring to Yahweh, God himself, when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced. It's a very important passage talking about the deity of Christ that the New Testament authors pick up as being fulfilled in Christ, very clearly in Zechariah, referring to uh, God himself. In other words, Jesus Christ is truly God. Does that make sense? Very important. So Zechariah, he talks about how this messianic king is going to be humbled, he's going to be pierced, yet through his suffering, Israel will be restored. And so you have these two truths being presented in Zechariah and really the rest of the prophets. The Messiah is a conquering warrior king, and yet at the same time, he is a stricken, afflicted, and rejected shepherd. Both messages are clearly presented in the prophets. And so the question is, well, how does all that fit together? It's not really until we come to the New Testament that we see one of those, his suffering and his rejection, mainly happens in his first coming. A lot of the uh, triumphal return, his glorious reign awaits his second coming. Um, So that's really where we see that, how it fits together. But hopefully we'll unpack a little bit more of that in Zechariah 3. Go ahead and turn there if you're not there already. Zechariah three. The first five verses are basically a vision, and then more or less the last five verses explain that vision, okay? So this is vision number four in Zechariah's night visions, is what we call them, that series of visions in those early chapters. I'm going to read through it and just kind of explain verse by verse, okay? Especially with these passages, they're, they're difficult to understand, okay? So don't feel bad if you're like, I, I, even after this morning, you're like, I don't totally get it. That's okay. Me neither, okay? Uh, but I want to walk through it and hopefully... You understand it a little better. Zechariah 3, verse 1. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. Okay, so just setting the scene. We're brought into this temple courtroom scene, okay, where you have this courtroom of judgment, you have prosecution, and then you have the defense, okay? We only get a picture. Like this, is anyone remember, where do we kind of see like a courtroom, you know, where the sons of God and Satan comes before the Father? Job 1, right? Remember that? That's really the only parallel where we clearly see something like this. Here we have Joshua the high priest. Uh, I would argue Joshua is a real historical priest. He's actually mentioned in Ezra chapter 2 and Nehemiah 7. This is a real dude, okay? Uh, but rather than interceding, doing priestly work, we see here in this scene, He's being accused by Satan, okay? Satan means the accuser, and what is he doing? The accuser is, as the verse says, accusing Joshua. Verse two, and the Lord said to Satan, by the way, I think the angel of the Lord in verse one is a member of the Trinity. Um, I mean, these are the only characters we have so far, the angel of the Lord, and then verse two says, and the Lord said, implication, I think the angel of the Lord is uh, a member of the Godhead, a member of the Trinity speaking. Here's what he says, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? So God very clearly rebukes Satan. Stop talking. You've got nothing, okay? He rebukes him. You are wrong. And he gives two reasons in the text. You guys see this here? First one there, what? God has chosen Israel. God has elected Jerusalem. He will do with them as he wills regardless of Satan's accusations, right? Immense comfort in that. Right? He's chosen them. He will do as he wills. And then second there, what does he say? God has plucked them from the fire. This is an allusion to Amos chapter 4, verse 11, uh, where God talks about Israel being saved out of judgment, similar to Sodom and Gomorrah. It's like they've been plucked out of that fire. He's delivered Joshua and even the remnant now out of the judgment of exile. So that's what he's saying there. Those are those two reasons. He rebukes Satan, verse 3. Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. So here is why Joshua is being accused. It says he is Clothed in filthy garments, okay? This is one of the strongest, most, like, just repugnant, disgusting pictures in the Old Testament. That word for filthy there uh, literally means, like, human excrement or vomit, okay? Typically not what you want to be clothed in. Um, I don't know about you guys. Uh, That's generally not good. That is disgusting, okay? And that is what he is wearing. So you have this priest who's supposed to be holy, set apart, clean for the purpose of interceding for the people of Israel as their representative, right? And instead, what? He's covered in disgusting filth. He represents Israel. Joshua is disgusting. Israel is disgusting because of their sin. And we know because if we just keep reading, these filthy garments are symbolic for sin, right? Just keep reading. He explains that in verse 4. The angel says, I have, he, he takes the filthy garments off of him, or he tells the angels around him, take those off, right? And then he says, what just happened? I have taken iniquity away from you. He's symbolizing the removal of sin. And then he's what? He's clothed with pure or holy garments. I think this is a clear Old Testament picture of salvation. This is what it looks like, right? God removes our sinfulness from us, and he credits us his righteousness, okay? Here we see that in a symbolic picture. I think it's just another clear reminder, just practically speaking for us today. God is the only one who can remove sin, right? You cannot remove your own filthy garments. You need another one to do that for you, and you need another one to impute righteousness to you. It's the same message all throughout Scripture. I love this next part here. What was it, verse 5? And I said, this is Zechariah, Okay like in context you know like Zechariah has seen this vision you know he's seen this and then it's like he like bursts onto the scene in excitement he's just like so overjoyed with this picture of salvation he's just like put a clean turban on his head whoa this is great right I mean that's what's going on he like bursts on the scene he loves this he's like hey the high priest is clean he's righteous give him the priestly headpiece he's pumped up right and verse 9 will make this more clear, but as I mentioned, the priest represents the nation, not just himself. This is a picture of forgiveness uh, and righteousness for God's people as a whole. Okay? So that's the first half of chapter 3, where kind of this vision is described. Now the implications of it are going to be fleshed out. Verse 6, and the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, thus says the Lord of hosts, if you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house, and have charge of my courts, and I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. So he calls him to be a faithful priest. He says, Walk in my ways and keep my charge. Um, very same language he said to Solomon um, earlier, earlier in the Old Testament, I think, first Kings. But the remarkable thing here is notice what he says, is that there's going to be an escalation of Joshua's access to God, right? And I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here angelic beings, right, who have access to God. Under the old covenant, you had only the high priest once a year on the Day of Atonement could go into the Holy of Holies, right, Leviticus chapter 16. That's the only immediate access he would have. But here he says, I'm going to give you access like angelic beings. This is a promise that this priest would have access to God's, uh, even if you want to say heavenly courtroom or something like that, unlike anything else in the Old Testament, this is a profound escalation. You guys tracking with me in that? There's this massive, massive promise, and hopefully you're starting to see now that Joshua's priesthood is starting to point forward to something remarkable. Okay, This is not like anything we've seen before. This is going to be amazing, the type of access that he has. Verse 8, hear now, O Joshua, the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are a sign. Okay? This is where he's going to Okay, so what? What is going on here Zechariah 3? The whole point of this, it is a sign. Behold, I will bring my servant, the branch. So Joshua and the other priests under him, right, this event, this whole thing is a sign. It's meant to point to something else. The purpose of a sign, right, you know, Mark's mentioned it a lot of times, a stop sign. You don't just go, wow, that's a nice stop sign. The sign is you do something with it, you stop, right? This sign is that we would look to something else, and what is that? He says, Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. Now, we've already mentioned this. Hopefully, you guys remember that first week we were talking about Isaiah. Remember Isaiah chapter 4, Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah 11, that branch language, right? This coming Messiah is described as a branch, a shoot from the stump of Jesse after judgment when the forest of Israel is chopped down. The branch is going to come forth. We saw it in Ezekiel 17, if you remember that, you know, the parable with the twigs and the eagles, right? Remember that? This branch language. We also see it clearly in Jeremiah. Listen to this. This is a clear word if you're trying to understand. Well, what's the big deal about branch? Jeremiah 23, 5 and 6. Behold, the days are coming, declares Yahweh, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. Very, very clear. Descendant of David, who is a righteous branch. And he, that branch, will reign as king and prosper. And he will do justice and righteousness in the land. in his days, in the days of this branch Messiah, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is his name by which he will be called Yahweh, our righteousness. Jeremiah is very clear that this branch is not just some ordinary dude. This is amazing. The Lord is our righteousness. Zechariah is building on all these promises that God has laid out in earlier scripture, right? Yahweh remembers. that That's his name, right? And he's building on, okay, here's what God said. He's even going back to Genesis. I'm not going to spend time in that. He's going back there. He's building upon that through Exodus. He's going through the prophets like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and he's saying God's agenda for his son. Nothing's changed. Tracking with me? That is what he's saying. Not only is he the branch, he is Yahweh's servant. He mentions that, right? My servant, the branch. Hopefully that calls to mind Isaiah, you guys remember the servant songs of Isaiah, right? As one who uh, embodies everything that Israel was supposed to be, he represents them. You guys remember Isaiah 53, the suffering servant? Hopefully you're starting to see these links, right? You start seeing words like branch or servant or something like that in the Old Testament. Keep reading. Try and see what's going on here. Maybe there's more than just what meets the eye. Verse 9. I'm just going to be honest. This is a difficult verse, and I am not dogmatic on this. Seven eyes and a single. You know, you and I read that. You should keep studying. Uh, There's a couple of viewpoints. Basically, the stone could be referring to the cornerstone of the temple that's currently being built in Zechariah's day. Um, That's one view. It could refer to uh, the priestly garments that the priests would wear. Um, instead of, you know, a plurality of stones, actually 14, just one type of stone, um, or it could be another messianic title, which is what I would land on. Um, either view is not without their difficulties. Um, there's some, some issues there. Um, rock or stone is a common messianic title, right? You guys remember um, Psalm 118, right, which the Lord quotes, I think 1 Peter, or Peter quotes it as well, you know, a, a rock of stumbling, you know, that um, Israel has stumbled over right. He's quoting there Daniel two Isaiah twenty eight. Um, so that's probably where I would lean. The seven eyes are you like what is that? I don't seven eyes. Um, it's it possibly refers to the Holy Spirit. As strange as that might sound, Zechariah four speaks of the Spirit of the Lord, and then in verse ten it says these seven are the eyes of the Lord which range through the whole earth. So you know if you're trying to understand a passage. Interpret it in its immediate context if there's any helps there. Zechariah 4:10 seems to indicate that it's referring to um, the spirit of the Lord, which is what I would argue so clearly a reference to the omniscience of the Lord. Um, but again like I said, difficult to be dogmatic on that one. same thing with the engravings on the stone it's like what what's engraved there? Well the early church fathers they thought it was referring to um, the wounds that Christ endured on Calvary. I don't know about that I'll just stick with them. It's a difficult verse, okay but The last part of the verse is very clear. It says, I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day, okay? This great high priest that Joshua and his priests are a symbol of will bring about the forgiveness of sins for the people of Israel in a remarkably short period of time. In a single day, their sins will be atoned for. Verse 10, final verse here. In that day, looking to this far day in the future, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you, will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. If you guys have had Old Testament stuff with me, you know I make a big deal out of vines and fig trees, which I will spare you that spiel. Uh, But this is an incredible last verse. Essentially a quote of um, Micah 4.4, which um, Micah in and of itself is pretty much a verbatim quote, it actually is, of Isaiah chapter 2, uh, which is referring to this glorious future of Israel on the mount of the lord in the last days. That's the, the language that it gives. So there's many takeaways from Zechariah 3. I want to get to Zechariah 11, so here's just one of them. Just one takeaway we can take from Zechariah 3. This glorious future of Israel is tied to the work and the person of the Messiah. Okay? Israel's glorious future is tied to the Messiah. It cannot happen apart from him. It cannot happen apart from the branch of the Lord. It cannot happen apart from the servant of the Lord. It's all centered and based upon him. And so I would argue, I think we are awaiting the culmination of Zechariah chapter 3 uh, in the Lord's return. I think Romans 11 um, in particular is building on, uh, he's going back to Isaiah. He quotes Isaiah 59, but he's also, I think, has this in mind. Romans eleven twenty six 26 says, and in this way, all Israel will be saved as it is written... The deliverer will come from Zion, he will banish ungodliness from Jacob, and this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. So Paul, I would argue, is looking forward to a coming day for Israel when God will save them in mass, and they will be brought back to faithfulness to the covenant, okay? So there's a lot there in Zechariah 3. You understand a little bit like, okay, you know, it's like Joshua, the high priest, and kind of interesting what's going on here, but I get... What's going on? Yes? Hopefully some nods. Okay. Zechariah 11. Zechariah 11. If you've got more questions, I am more than happy to talk to you guys afterwards. Doesn't mean I have an answer. Zechariah chapter 11. There's a lot of shepherds in this chapter. It's kind of like duck, duck, goose, but like bad shepherd, bad shepherd, good shepherd. Okay? Um, That's basically... What's going on here? Or fake shepherd, fake shepherd, true shepherd. However you want to talk about it. Okay, lots of shepherds. Zechariah 11. We're gonna start verse one here. Open your doors, O Lebanon, that the fire may devour your cedars. Wail, O cypress, for the cedar has fallen, for the glorious trees are ruined. Wail, oaks of Bashan, for the thick forest has been felled. The sound of the wail of the shepherds, for their glory is ruined. The sound of the roar of the lions for the thicket of the Jordan is ruined. This is a brief transition poem, you could say, between chapter ten and chapter eleven. Okay, and the main point is pretty clear. Like this is destruction. This is not good. Like he's calling for wail, weeping. Trees are just getting destroyed. Okay, like this is not a daisies and just wonderful time picture. You guys struggling? Like this is bad. Okay, destruction is coming the glory of israel is going to be destroyed now understand this contextually what has just happened they've been brought back to israel the exile you could say has ended has it not right they're back in the land this is 520 bc they're rebuilding the temple okay so they're thinking wow you know like hey all the glorious promises you know Maybe the branch is coming. Maybe the temple is going to be rebuilt. This is going, maybe these are the good old glory days of Israel times 10. Okay? And then you read a poem like this, and you're like, oh, that's not good. What is Zechariah saying here? I would say he is saying that Israel is going to go even deeper into exile, that there is another exile to come. Ezra and Nehemiah, they show that even though Israel has returned to the land and they're rebuilding the temple, exile is not over. Because we can't have just a physical restoration to the land. We also need to have a spiritual restoration to the Lord. Okay? Exile is not over until both of those things happen. You tracking with me on this? We need both. So remember, Israel's returned to the land. They're rebuilding the temple. Zechariah is saying another exile is coming. This is not going to be good. Okay? Verse 4. Thus said the Lord my God, become shepherd of the flock doomed to slaughter, okay? Here is a, what we would just say is a prophetic sign act that Zechariah is going to do. What is a prophetic sign act? What are you talking about? Well, suffice it to say, the prophets do a lot of interesting things, okay? Like Isaiah, you know? He walks around naked and barefoot for three years. Pretty interesting, right? Right? Like Ezekiel, I can't remember the exact amount of days, but he like lays on one side, I think for like 45 days or something like that, and he switches over for like 365. Like, wow, I don't do that. I mean, that's, I don't know about you guys, but that's a long time to lay on one side, okay? The prophets do interesting things, okay? The point is not that you go, wow, that's very interesting, is you go, oh, that means something. That's a sign for something. In Isaiah's case, Um, that exile is going to come actually for pagan nations. He's talking about the Egyptians and the Cushites. Um, Just like he, you know, has walked around naked and barefoot for all these years, so these people are going to be led into captivity uh, in the same way, okay? So this is a prophetic sign act. This is a little different. God calls Zechariah to take on the role of shepherd, okay? To be the shepherd of Israel. Now, hopefully, some bells are ringing here. God, Yahweh himself, as the shepherd of Israel, we've seen in the Old Testament. Have we not? What's the most famous one? Yes, yes, thank you. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. God is our shepherd, right? Ezekiel 34 and 37, we didn't look at these, um, are also very, very important. There, Ezekiel 34 and 37, they make it clear that this king, this coming Messiah, Uh, who is the shepherd of Israel, a Davidic Messiah, he's going to come from the house of David, just as Genesis 49, Isaiah 7 said he would. So uh, this shepherd language here in Zechariah 11, verse 4, it's clearly a reference point to prior messianic prophecy, but it's also significant in Zechariah's context. It's also significant in his context that he uses it. What do I mean by that? Well, in Zechariah 10, he has decried in judgment... Israel's shepherds are bad, okay? And by shepherds, who are the main, I'll I'll just kind of give it away, like the three main leading offices in Israel? Priest, king, prophet, boom, we got it, okay? That's who he's decrying when he's talking about shepherds, the shepherds of Israel. Those are their leaders, prophet, priest, king, okay? You guys have done a bad job, okay? And so Zechariah, when the Lord says, you be the shepherd of my people Israel, Zechariah is going to represent what the true shepherd is going to look like. Does that make sense? Contrary to all these other false shepherds. Okay. Keep reading. But then you notice, what is he to be the shepherd of? Be the shepherd of the flock doomed to slaughter. This is is not starting out optimistic. This is not going to go well, okay? The flock doomed to slaughter. The flock of Israel is destined for judgment. Verse 5. Those, probably referring to foreign nations, who by them... It's talking about the sheep of Israel. So foreign nations, oppressors who buy the sheep of Israel, they slaughter them and they go unpunished. And those who sell them say, blessed be the Lord, I have become rich and their own shepherds have no pity on them. For I will no longer have pity on the inhabitants of this land, declares the Lord. Behold, I will cause each of them to fall into the hand of his neighbor and each into the hand of his king and they shall crush the land and I will deliver none from their hand. So, what is he saying here? Israel is being taken advantage of even by its own leaders, its own shepherds. That's what he says. Their own shepherds think, again, like I said, those prophets, those priests and kings. They're sinful, they are wicked. They're even saying, What? God, thank you for making us rich. You know, and they're, I mean, this is horrible oppression to God's people. And they are thanking the Lord for it. Israel's been betrayed by their own leaders. And as such, what does it say? God will no longer have pity. On the inhabitants of this land, the flock of Israel is headed for slaughter. Okay? Now, this is jarring, or it should be, for a number of reasons, textually. Number one, the shepherds should not be doing that, right? Like, they're supposed to be caring for, tending the flock of God, leading by example, loving them, okay? So, this is horrible what they're doing. But number two, what happened to Zechariah as shepherd? Right? Remember verse four? He says like, hey, you be my shepherd. And then in verse five and six, it's like the shepherd is already off the scene and we've got all these wicked shepherds. What is Zachariah doing here? Well, I would argue already the text is indicating that this good shepherd that Zechariah is supposed to represent has been rejected by Israel. We do not want this shepherd. We want someone else. And by that rejection, the shepherd will end up bringing that nation into judgment, Israel, by the hands of its own evil shepherds. Does that make sense? Good shepherd, been rejected by the people, and therefore that nation is going to come into judgment. Okay, verse 7. So, I became the shepherd of the flock, doomed to be slaughtered by the sheep traders. And I took two staffs. One I named Favor, the other I named Union. And I tended the sheep. In one month, I destroyed the three shepherds but I became impatient with them and they also detested me. Okay, what is going on here, okay? First, this is an allusion to Ezekiel 37. Ezekiel 37. In Ezekiel 37, sorry, in verse 15, Ezekiel, he does another sign act, okay? And what he does, he joins two sticks together. You're like, okay, what's he gonna do? Like hit someone with it? No, he joins two sticks and they're to represent Israel and Judah, okay? Remember, the kingdoms were divided. You remember that? After Solomon, things don't go well. They're divided for a long period of time. Well, Ezekiel is saying there's going to come a day when the tribes are going to be reunited. We're going to have this glorious restoration of Israel, and so he joins those two sticks together. And the Lord clearly explains this is what that means. He's going to rejoin Israel. Okay, that is what Zechariah is alluding to here with these two sticks. Okay, then Zechariah says he shepherds the sheep, like God says he will do personally. In Ezekiel 34, so he works as the shepherd, he represents this messianic figure, he's going to restore Israel, he's going to shepherd their sheep, but that's not what happens here. In fact, it gets kind of confusing, if it wasn't already, what does he say? In one month, I destroyed the three shepherds. What do you guys think that means? Three shepherds, what do we talk about, the leaders of Israel, what were they? prophet, priest, king, yes, okay, I think that is what he is alluding to here, the three shepherds refers to Israel's leadership, the prophet, the priest, and the king, he's already mentioned and alluded to those offices in his book, the rest of the prophets do that as well, and then he goes on to say, in one month, right, they're going to be destroyed, the one month is interesting, why one month, well, if contextually, Jeremiah 52, I don't expect you guys to memorize this. I had to look a lot of, this, by the way, I don't just know this stuff. I don't want you guys to get the wrong impression. Like I have to do a lot of work in this. And it's like, wow, it's amazing. It's like, thank you, but this is work for me. Okay, like I have to cross-reference a lot of these things. Okay. In Jeremiah 52, which is when Nebuchadnezzar finally brings down Jerusalem, it says it happens in a one-month period. Okay. So, you know, he's besieging them, you know, and this takes a lot of time. But then when the breakthrough's made in the wall, and it's like, okay, now we're doomed, like. You know, when you're holding out, you know, it's kind of like, I have to make a Lord of the Rings reference. You know, Helm's Deep, right? You know, and they're getting attacked. Hey, the walls are secure, man. The walls are secure. We're holding our own. We're doing okay. But then when they blow up the wall, it's like, we're toast. We're done. Okay? There's like no hope, except for Gandalf. Spoiler alert. Anyways, uh, it's like that, okay? It's like same thing with, with, with Israel, okay? You know, the breach is made in the wall, and they're toast, okay? Well, from when the breach is made in the wall to when Nebuchadnezzar fully conquers them, it's a one-month period. It's very clear in the text. So I think Zechariah is alluding to that, and he's saying just like Israel was brought down in a quick one-month period, Israel's going to be brought down again in a very quick time frame. Does that make sense? I think that's the allusion there to one month. In other words, a total collapse of Jerusalem and its government all its offices, prophet, priest, and king, are going to come down. It's going to happen again. Why? It says the shepherd became impatient with them, the leaders of Israel, and they detested or hated him. They rejected him. They hate this coming shepherd. Verse 9. So I said, Zechariah, who's embodying this true shepherd, he says, I will not be your shepherd. What is to die, let it die. What is to be destroyed, let it be destroyed, and let those who are left devour the flesh of one another. And I took my staff favor, and I broke it, annulling the covenant that I had made with all the people, so it was annulled on that day, and the sheep traders who were watching me knew that it was the word of the Lord. So eventually the shepherd says, fine, I am not going to shepherd you anymore. You have rejected me, I will reject you. He leaves the flock that is to be slaughtered to their doom, they devour one another, And so when the leaders of the nation reject the messianic shepherd, judgment and destruction will come upon Israel's leaders and people. Verse 10 talks about this covenant with all the peoples that is annulled or broken on that day. I think this is referring back to Exodus 19, where in the the Mosaic covenant, uh, God says to them, if you obey my voice and keep my covenant, you will be my treasured possession among all the peoples. And so in other words, they have not kept the covenant. Because of their sinfulness, Israel's specific treasured possession status, their security that they have because of that is going to be lost, okay? You're going to be my treasured possession if you're faithful. If you're not, you're actually going to lose that status of being protected. In other words, they were unfaithful. What's coming? Judgment, okay? That is what is going on there. Verse 12, then I said to them, if it seems good to you, give me my wages. Now, just... If you guys have been lost, I'm sorry, but focus in here, okay? Track with me. Verse 12. Then I said to them, if it seems good to you, give me my wages, but if not, keep them. And they weighed out as my wages 30 pieces of silver. Then the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, the lordly price at which I was priced by them. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord to the potter. Okay, just an aside point here. See how potter is mentioned there twice? And then see how, like, the second time, it's, like, kind of, like, even added on. Like, it's, like, I threw the piece of silver into the house of the Lord to the potter. And it just kind of seems like, okay, why'd you have to say that? Good question. Just tuck that away, okay? Potter, I need to remember this for, like, five minutes, okay? Remember that. Verse 14, then I broke my second staff union, annulling the brotherhood between Judah and Israel, Okay? Besides Zechariah 11 being a complicated passage, here's why I wanted to to look at it. Does this sound familiar to anyone? What does it sound like? Judas, yes. And what? Potter's field, yep. 30 pieces of silver, that's what he's paid, right? So you're reading this and you're going, wait a minute, this kind of sounds familiar, okay? That's a connection you actually want to make because Matthew quotes this passage, okay? So just... That's why we're looking at that, okay? The betrayal of Jesus uh, by Judas in the Gospels. He's making that connection. The shepherd, who Zechariah is, he's giving 30 pieces of silver, which, by the way, I don't know if you guys are trading in gold and silver these days. Maybe that sounds like a lot. You're like, oh, 30 pieces of silver. Uh, That is not. That is actually an insultingly low price. Uh, In Exodus 21 and 27, I believe, yeah, uh, the price of a slave in debt was 30 pieces of silver. So it's like the price of a, slave person okay and so you're like okay slave person glorious shepherd king of israel we've never seen before like big difference between the two right this is an insultingly low price this is a demeaning price for who the shepherd is and notice where does Zechariah throw the 30 pieces of silver what does it say in the house of the lord okay Now remember, contextually, what is going on in Zechariah's day? What is being rebuilt? The temple, okay? The temple has been rebuilt. And Zechariah, as the shepherd who's been rejected, takes this payment and throws it in the temple. What's going on here is Zechariah is rejecting the work of what Israel is doing. The temple that you are building is being rejected by the Lord. This temple being built in 520 is not the glorious temple that's promised by the prophets. And rather than this, in Zechariah's day being the return of Israel, this glorious future, that's not happening. What's going to happen? They're going to go even further and further into exile. Do you see what's going on there? Okay. He breaks the staff, signifying the union between Israel and Judah. It is no more. Well, this is crucial because Ezekiel 37 says those need to be brought together for exile to end This is not good. Exile is going to continue. The promises of God to Israel are not going to be fulfilled in Zechariah's day, but are still to come in the future. And in fact, verse 15, I'm not going to read it. It gets worse. They're like, it can't get worse. Oh, it can. Verse 15 to the end of the chapter deals with this anti-shepherd, okay? You're like, whoa, anti-shepherd kind of sounds like antichrist. Yes, start seeing those things. This is demonic. This is evil, Right, you see that verse 15, take once more, the equipment of a foolish shepherd. Right? This shepherd represents everything that the true shepherd is not. Okay? He is the opposite of him. This is not good. So what's around the corner for Israel? Exile. And it's going to get worse. There's going to be this immense time of tribulation when the false shepherd arises. Okay? So to put a pin in Zechariah 11, I need to land the plane. I've got a couple more things to say. Okay? He has said a lot. But one clear emphasis he's built on is that it is necessary for the Messiah to be rejected by his people. And that as the rejected Messiah, he will then, as Isaiah 53 and Daniel 9 make clear, he will then atone for the sins of his people as the rejected Messiah. It is a remarkable passage here in Zechariah 11, a lot going on here. I want to end, turn to Matthew 27. One last thing here. Turn to Matthew 27. I just want to think through how the New Testament cites and uses this passage, okay? But it's not only Matthew. Think of John 10. This is very clear. What did you say? What did you say? I am the good shepherd. Think Zechariah 11, right? Obviously, you know, Psalm 23 and, uh, you know, those other passages. But think of Zachari- <clears throat> Excuse me. Think of Zechariah 11, right? He ministers, and he cares for, what does he say he goes out? To tend to the, quote, lost sheep of Israel, okay? And also, is he not rejected by the leaders of Israel in his day, right? And he, therefore, he's rejected by them, he rejects them, and then that rejection leads to the destruction of, Of Jerusalem in 70 AD, if you didn't know that, that happens. The Romans come in and completely raise Jerusalem to the ground in a quick period of time, just like Jeremiah 52 said it was going to be in Zechariah 11. So, I mean, there's just so many textual connections and references to what Zechariah says uh, in chapter 11. I want to end Matthew 27, verse 3. Verse 3, Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver... To the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, What is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the thirty pieces of silver into the temple, ring a bell to anyone? Yes? He departed and he went and hanged himself. But the chief priest, taking the pieces of silver, said, It is not lawful to put them into the treasury since it is blood money. So they took counsel and brought with them, excuse me, and bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, And they took the 30 pieces of silver, the price of him, on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field, as the Lord directed me. Now, careful with me here. (laughs) Know what I mean when I ask this question. What is wrong with that passage? Did anyone pick up on it? Be brave. Zechariah is the prophecy, but then he says, then what was fulfilled by who? Jeremiah. Okay, now you're going, wait a minute. Did Matthew, like, just forget what book he was reading? Like, come on, dude, what's going on here? Yes? Anyone else? Okay, hopefully you're seeing that, right? He says, this was fulfilled, this fulfilled what Jeremiah said, and then he quotes Zechariah. Did Matthew forget? No. That's the case I'm going to make. He actually knew what he was doing. And this is why, remember, I was like, hey, remember the potter? Anyone remember the potter? Good, yes, okay. It's kind of, like, tacked on there. Like, like why is he, like, adding on the potter here, okay? Great question. I'm so glad you asked that question, okay? The exact Hebrew form of the potter, okay? Um, the potter, Hayatzer, it only appears eight times in the Hebrew Old Testament, okay? Eight times. It's not that many times, okay? twice in Zechariah 11, okay, the other six times in just one little section of scripture, Jeremiah 18 and 19, okay, you're like, okay, he quoted Jeremiah, maybe there's a connection there, okay, keep following that through, Jeremiah 18 and 19, in Jeremiah 18 and 19, Jeremiah, like Zechariah, he does a prophetic sign act, okay, he's going to do something and it stands for something else, uh, excuse me, Jeremiah, he goes to the potter's house, okay, He goes to the potter's house. The potter, in Jeremiah 18 and 19, represents God, okay? And that he can do whatever he wants with the clay of people, okay? He is the potter. We are the clay. He can do anything he chooses. He is sovereign over the clay of people. Then the potter, in Jeremiah 19, actually smashes a clay pot, which, like, just put two and two together. Is that good or bad? That's judgment, right? Like, this is symbolizing... The Lord's judgment, okay? He smashes this clay pot. Judgment is coming for you, O Israel, because of your sin. So the potter then is an emblem or a symbol of judgment and exile. Zechariah 11, he picks up on that. He's trying to make the same point that judgment is coming. Your rejection of the true shepherd is going to lead to more judgment and more exile. So no, I would say Matthew did not quote, the wrong book. He actually wanted us to read Jeremiah and Zechariah together. He was doing that, I would argue. He read and he knew Jeremiah and Zechariah and under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he guided him to lay down in Scripture that link and he wants us to see that same link between Jeremiah, Zechariah, and Matthew. Israel rejected Jesus Christ and because, uh, or because they wanted a Messiah who would lead them out of exile. Now, the irony is clear. They rejected him because they wanted someone to bring them out of exile. Their rejection of them, of him is going to lead to what? Exile, right? So beginning And it begins, obviously, with the Romans in uh, 70 AD when they destroy Jerusalem. And I would argue continuing to this very present day that Israel is actually still in exile. Yes, a lot of them have returned to the land physically, but spiritually, they have not returned. To the Lord. The tribes have not been reunited. They don't have the glorious future as promised by the prophets, but that will change one day when, as Zechariah 12 says, when they look on him whom they have pierced. So, I am already like five minutes over. My goal with stuff like this, you know, besides being handed like five weeks and I gotta figure out something to do, um, is hopefully you see Old Testament prophecy is remarkable. Okay? I, w- I want everyone to see, I love the Old Testament. And it's the more and more I study, especially like passages like this, you see how amazing it is? I think sometimes we can, me personally, I know it's hard work, and so therefore I'd rather not do the hard work of studying. uh, But continue to do that. There are riches in the Old Testament that are there if you do the hard work of examining the scriptures. You know, be Bereans. Examine the scriptures to see if it is so. So, yes. Um: Yeah, it's a good question. Uh, the text doesn't indicate, you know, you know, going back to Exodus 21 or 27, but I would just say this: you know, the chief priests and the scribes were far better Old Testament scholars than I am or ever will be, uh, And so I would think they very much knew what they were doing, uh, yeah, that it's an insultingly low price. Does that help?: Yeah.